Hello, and welcome to the second ever English Network podcast. Uh, today we're going to be looking at the poem The Prelude by William Wordsworth. Uh, I'm Ted Seeley. And I'm Alex Barton. Indeed. So, uh, just give me a quick uh, run through of what today's going to look like. We're going to run through uh, some of the key quotations from the poem, uh, analysing the language, uh, and then much to the chagrin of Emily, who sadly is not here with us today. Uh, we're going to be looking at the form and structure as our final note on the poem. Right, so let's get straight into it. Uh, Al, our history man on the spot, as ever, can you just do a quick recap for me on what romanticism is? Yeah, so um, we spoke about in a last episode about uh, London and Ozymandias talking about romantic poets and what romantic poets were trying to achieve with with their poetry um, and where this whole philosophical school of thought um, root, was what well, it was all rooted in. Um, so we're looking at a a reaction against the modern the modern world, the post Enlightenment world, um, where people were using science to find truth and lots of the mystery that. Had, previously characterised people's understanding of the world was being, um, was being downgraded. Um, so it's a reaction against industrialization, urbanization, secularization, and consumerism. And these romantics, primarily, um, especially in the, in the poems that we're looking at, they valued nature above this kind of like man, the man-made aspects of life. Um, and the prelude is probably the most kind of outwardly or overtly romantic poem in that respect, as it's a big um, it's an exploration of nature, the power of nature, and what we hinted towards last time, this idea of the, the sublime experience, which we'll, we'll speak about a bit later. Indeed, fantastic. I'm always learning something from you, Al, so I appreciate that. Um, right, so uh, let's just dive straight in and start looking at the language. So uh, we're just going to look at the first section of the poem uh, where... Um, He's kind of he's stealing the boat. So just to do a run a run through the poem. So we have uh, a narrator who we believe to be a man uh, who steals a boat. Uh, he goes out into the middle of a lake. He's p- feeling pretty pleased with himself. He's very happy, very arrogant, um, and he's having a great time. And then all of a sudden, something very strange happens. Is he sees a mountain, and he has. Uh, quite possibly a panic attack and he seems to freak out he gets terrified he thinks the mountain's chasing him so he rows back home back to where he came from uh, he gets out of the boat and then for the next few weeks few days for a long time he's having nightmares because he saw a mountain um, and I love uh, introducing this to my classes because they find that quite a strange story uh, and they have very little sympathy often for the narrator a man who's terrified of a mountain but of course, I mean, it only makes sense when you really look at it in the context of romanticism and the deeper yeah. meaning. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to really explore that language and find out what exactly is actually going on. So to start us off, uh, Al, do you have a quotation you'd like to look at? Yeah. Okay. Um, so at the very, almost kind of like the first, the first line is describing the way that he's, that where he is, his summer evening. Um, he finds a little boat um, and he talks about how he unloosed the chain of the boat um, and, and, and he stole it. He, he described it as a, an act of stealth and troubled pleasure. Um, so look, again, as always, it seems with my analysis of these poems, we're, we're looking at it from a, a romantic point of view. Um, at this point, Wordsworth, and I think it's important to, to clarify as well when we're talking about the, the relationship between the poet and the speaker, which can often be a bit confusing as the poet and the speaker is almost always um, a different they're different people. Mm-hmm. Um, this is seen. This is an, an autobiographical poem. So Wordsworth himself can be considered the speaker. Yeah, um, and, and, and just I think that's so such a, a tricky concept in so many of the poems. Yeah, so often confusing. So just as a tip, always make sure you understand the difference between the narrator and the poet in all the poems you're looking at. So for instance, an exposure again seems to have a very autobiographical uh, element to it. So you can talk about uh, Wilfred Owen and the narrator as if they're the same person. Again, the same in this poem, but. 
the poems we looked at, uh, such as Ozymandias, that is not the case. Yeah, and I think it's just important to realise, um, just, to, just to quickly clear something up, um, where Ted says narrator and I say speaker, um, it's the same thing. We're just talking about the kind of the voice in which the poem is written. Mm-hmm. So the point of view of the, of the almost like the main character, the speaking, the speaking voice. Um, right. So if we look at this, this, these quotations, um, I unloosed her chain. Um, he's already referring to, um, he refers to the boat as her um, and later refers to, to his whole surroundings. And that's the kind of way he, he, he basically personifies it, uses that, that um, third person pronoun of her. Um, and then he talks about the act of stealth and trouble pleasure. Um, and we're talking about romanticism um, and what romantics disliked about the modern world. And what they disliked was mankind's exploitative approach to nature. The fact that they felt that they had control over it, they had dominance over it, and if we talk, if we look at this this quotation, um, stealth and trouble, pleasure, there's uh, almost like a sexual imagery which is being used here, where we're talking about the the speaker feels as if he is um, he knows he's doing something wrong, and yet he's doing it anyway, um, and he's finding this kind of. Well, he, I mean, there's no better way of putting it than the way he does, which is <laughs> trouble, pleasure. Um, and that's something that's, that's continued later on. So we look at that again. We look at this, this um, character arc of this, character, of this speaker in the, just in this extract of the poem. He goes from someone in these few lines who is exceptionally arrogant, um, almost hubristic. And that's a good term that we, that we spoke about last time, where he feels, he feels such a sense of power and such a sense of pride that it's almost inevitably going to go wrong for him. Absolutely, he's set himself up for a fall. And just on that quotation, uh, I, I unloosened her chain. Um, or I unloosed, I should say. Uh, I think that's such an interesting one. There's a real sense of irony here in terms of he, by the end of the poem, he has unloosed his own chain. His arrogance is chaining him down to thinking about the world in a certain way. So he mm-hmm. thinks he's freeing the boat. But actually, we know that moments later, he frees himself from his own misconceptions about the world. Yeah. And I think at the beginning, I think really what Wordsworth's doing here in the opening is he's setting him up for a fall. Yeah. He's making him look as arrogant, as kind of a hubristic, fantastic term as possible, so that when he has that epiphany, that sudden realisation of a great truth, when he falls down from this height, he hits the ground hard. He's in for yeah. a big shock. And that, that's the, the really kind of... We're going we're gonna to stray into, for, into structural points here, but that's, the, that's what, what really sets this poem apart, because I, I, I'm fully aware that when people approach these po- the, a poem like this one, it, the language seems quite difficult to, um, to make sense of, but it's one of the only poems. Well, first of all, it's, the language is extremely rich if you just allow yourself to really, um, yeah, to really, to really engage with it. But also, it's it's structured in such a way that, and it, it, partly because of its length, but just the way that it, the way that it's this kind of autobiographical, almost like just an anecdote. Um, we see this character arc, that, and we see this development, um, and Wordsworth throughout the poem is personifying. Um, sorry, he's not not personifying because he obviously is a person. Um, he's embodying these um, characteristics of mankind that he saw as being destructive and corrosive um, at the start, um, and he he's basically uh, going through for for the reader, explaining how he changed, how his 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 point of view was changed. A hundred percent. So just the quotation that I'm going to look at now is, uh, so he's, once he's strode, strode out into the lake, uh, very arrogantly, on his boat, having a great time, naughty lad sitting on a boat, uh, there's just this quotation describing kind of the scenery um, of, of what's around him. And there's this beautiful quotation, uh, small circles glittering, glittering idly <coughs> in, the, in the moon. 
And what this is really doing, it's, it's this idea that as he's out in the lake, the lake is reflecting the stars themselves. And it's just this really, really, again, that word kind of rich language. And the idea of you know, the stars are glittering, almost suggesting it's like a diamond. It's like something that's very, very valuable. Uh, the, the fact they're glittering idly, so they're beautiful, but it's effortless. This is a, a really serene, calm environment. And then you've got that celestial body, the moon, something they kind of look up to and kind of full of wonder. It's reflecting the lake. And what I like here is Wordsworth, again, is showing the arrogance and the hubris of the narrator by having small circles. So when he looks down at this lake and he looks at this reflection, he almost feels like he owns the scenery, like this is all for him. There's a possessive, entitled tone here where he thinks he this imagery is all, all for him. Yeah. And I love the kind of... There's like a hallucinogenic, I want to say, quality to... Definitely. Until they melted all into one track of sparkling light. So the lights are almost converging on one another and mixing, and it's... It's almost like you're not really entirely certain what you're seeing. The beauty is so powerful that it's almost overwhelming and confusing. He doesn't necessarily think this in this moment. Again, come back to the small circles. But it's really creating this beautiful, serene environment at the start of this poem. Yeah. And there's also, this is just something I just thought of when you were saying that, um, this kind of disconnect between the, the experience at that time and then Wordsworth writing the poem after the fact. So it could be that he was, upon reflecting upon what he was mm-hmm. seeing... Um, he see, he he's realizing just how stunning a scene that was, yeah. um, but also acknowledging the fact that he, even though he he valued nature for its beauty, he didn't necessarily respect it. Yeah. So he wasn't respecting it for its power. He was seeing it as something that he could just he could take from. It was yeah. almost a resource that he could draw from, something that existed only for his for his pleasure and his enjoyment. Like the worst sort of tourist in the world. Exactly. It's all there for yeah. his benefit. It's not that it has any value in and of itself. It only matters and that's an object for his enjoyment. Yeah, 100%. I really Definitely. Like <coughs> uh, do you want to take yeah. us off? So again, we spoke about the idea, this image of him um, unloosing the chain, this trouble, pleasure. And then that, that kind of, again, it's that sexual imagery, um, which can be an uncomfortable thing to, to write about and certainly for it to, to teach a class. But it's, it's really quite prevalent throughout the poem. Um, and it's almost confirmed um, so we've got this unloose the chain. It's almost the like idea of like removing clothing, and then he's talking about um, how he lustily dipped his oars into mm. the silent lake. Um, I mean, you can leave much of that to the imagination, but it's the same. It's the same idea that he feels um, so so in control, so dominant, um, and the fact that he's taking he's taking from the scene, um, and that that adverb of lustily just really just really kind of. Um, imprints that image for the for the reader that he he does truly he is truly exploiting what he's what he's um his surroundings rather than um simply existing in them and i I think there's um i think it's a very intentionally chosen word right lustily like that has clear sexual connotations i think when we see wordsworth do this i think there's almost a finger being pointed towards the the arrogance of men the way we think we can control speaking for all men here, the way we think we can control and possess things and that that attitude is kind of filtered down to how we engage with nature and the world and with science. We think that we are the masters of the universe. So he's almost treating nature how men treat women in that sense of possession and that sense of objectification and using something for pleasure. And it's a, I think it's a very intentional criticism of, of, of the, the masculine attitude and how that underlines much of what's wrong in society. Yeah. But also, but also, can you extrapolate that from the individual mm-hmm. to society, to government level? Yeah. Um, so we're talking about he's talking. What you just said is absolutely correct, uh, or definitely feasible. Talk, talking about the kind of like um, the destructive aspect or the toxic aspect of masculinity, but also you, you know it's important not to lose sight of the fact that he is 
he is a romantic poet who has a lot to say about um, modern society post enlightenment and mm-hmm. and the kind of um, what they would describe as kind of like the voracious um, consumption of of all natural resources, mm-hmm. um, but also of all things that that are um, mystical or mysterious and kind of like the the new sterile rational way of seeing something is something that can be bought and sold, um, something that can be measured and fully understood. And it's that image of um, the world shrinking. So the, everything's mapped out. Everything, there's nothing. There's nothing left there's to the no imagination. There's no world exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. No, 100%. Yeah, really like that. Um, so I'm just going to look next at the quotation. At, and this this quotation perfectly sums up the the unfounded or unnecessary arrogance that he, he kind of consumes him. Uh, so we got the quotation when heaving through the water like a swan. So this is, a, you know, first of all, we have, you know, it's a simile, fairly obvious. I think a lot of candidates in the exam are going to pick out this quotation, but you can really say a lot here in terms of what this shows us about the narrator and his thoughts and his feelings. So obviously he's comparing himself to a swan. Now swans are, you know, they're beautiful, regal creatures. They're majestic. They're very serene, and you know, they're also able to fly. Like that's an important point. Like, what sums up the majesty and beauty of nature more than a flying bird? So the fact that he chooses a swan and it has this so much power, so much beauty, so much again majesty. He he thinks he is all of those things. And he thinks he is in control of nature. He thinks he's at one with nature in a really, again, arrogant, hubristic way. But when we look earlier in the quotation and we see that, that, that verb heaving, now swans don't heave. Swans are graceful and elegant. So he says he's heaving through the water like a swan. That's almost oxymoronical, I'd say. Heaving yeah. like a swan. Swans don't heave. So I think what he's showing here is that he is not actually in any way like a swan. But his arrogance and his, his kind of ego means he, he's comparing himself. Yeah an unfounded comparison unearned revealed by the use of the verb heaving yeah where well, you would what would you expect a swan to do glide glide yeah Skate. I think yeah, it's, got, yeah. They, yeah. It, it's effortless right but yeah. that's the thing with, with, with swans and with birds everything is effortless heaving could not require more effort yeah I'll try and heave as little as possible yeah and as if just in time he has this realisation that um, he's heaving like a swan um we have this turn in the poem, so you can call it a volta. Um, that's something that's possible. That's often um, reserved to describe the the structure of a sonnet, but it you could definitely apply it here. The fact that the tone completely changes in an um, instant, yeah, straight away. Because he's so. The, I'm just going to read a little bit of the of the poem here, just so we know where we're up to. So after he's after um, he's he's in the boat, he's feeling confident. He's got his eyes fixed on the on the utmost boundary. Um, and he says, when from behind that craggy steep till then the horizons bound, a huge peak, black and huge, as if with voluntary power instinct upreared its head. Um, and this is the moment where he sees from behind what he thought was the horizon's peak. Um, so we're talking about the mountain that he was using as a kind of guide to help him row in a straight line. Um, another mountain rises from behind that mountain, which he previously hadn't seen. And it's, a, and it's much bigger and it seems threatening to him. Um, but this, this idea of the horizons bound, again, we go back to um, romanticism and our assessment objective three, our context and what Wordsworth is trying to say, I mean, among other things, but in terms of um, his romantic ideology or at least his philosophy, um, we're looking at, when we talk about the horizon, it's, it's the boundary, it's, what, it's what's known, it's what you can see. So he thought he was confident, not only in his skill and not only in his dominance over what he was doing, but in also, also in what he knew. So the horizon's bound, he was certain of it. He was proud of his skill as he was moving and he, th- and he felt completely in control. Now we, we can e- quite, quite kind of readily uh, transfer this or like I said, extrapolate it from the individual to society. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're talking about 
Horizons Bound being scientific understanding. So what we know of the world as it is. Now, the what we know of the world now is is um, obviously much more than what that was known at the time at the time that um, Wordsworth was writing this. Um, however, it's still at a time where scientific advancement is expanding to such a point where humans feel or begin to feel that they have a an unprecedented mastery over the universe itself, not just like life on Earth. Um, and so when he sees this horizons bound, which he was certain of be, um, be undermined or completely blown out of the water by this new horizon, which was completely unknown to him, um, that is a, almost, you could read it as a warning or kind of like a prediction. It's almost like a prophetic idea that he, he's saying that we are this, this certainty, this hubris that we feel that we have so, so much control over the material world um, can only end in disaster because there are, there are levels of being and levels of existence that um, human beings can never understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's found, and, we're, and again, we're, we're tiptoeing into the spiritual, into the mystical. Um, and Wordsworth is, is essentially showing what that, what that might be. Um, and again, it's gonna, it, it'll be some terrible form, or in, in this it's a terrible form, sorry, but you, you, can, you can use your own imaginations to decide as what that might be in, in kind of like real terms. Um, but the whole point is that this, this horizon is, is now ended. Uh, the horizon that he thought was, he was so certain of is now irrelevant. Mm-hmm. 100%. And, and it, so following this, you know, he, he kind of has this instant fear and terror. And the, there's loads in this section, there's loads of quotations that you could pick out. You know, you've got the personification of the mountain. There are all these things that you can kind of, the, again, the language is so rich here. But I just want to look at the line. Um, is it, so he's, he's going back through the silent water. Through the silent water stole my way. So as, you know, he's got the trembling oars, he's going back. But I really like, there's almost... Uh, it's like a cliche in a horror film or in a horror story that the setting is itself personified and the idea that the water is silent so there's this mountain chasing after him but there's an eerie silence and for the narrator now he's almost you know he's personifying the water and its silence that it's not helping him he thought he was in control of the water but not only is he not in control but in this moment of desperation and panic it's actually passively watching him being chased by this this unnamed undetermined monster that's right behind him and i just really like that yeah, that adjective silent, that just... It's, it's kind of like poetic justice, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's almost like a, a vengeful act of, well, through inaction. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's, that's an interesting image, definitely. Yeah, just a short note on that line. So what have we got next? Um, I was just going to, I just wanted to go back a little bit further on to when he, when he talks about, he, he personifies the mountain um, with voluntary power instinct. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's talking about, just talking about what that what that language is actually ta- is actually saying. So he's he describe he compares the mountain as being some huge monster um, that uprears its head, and it has voluntary power instinct. And I just think um, using that um, instinct as as this abstract idea of the abstract noun, sorry, of an instinct. Um, it just it just has connotations of something that's um, something that's ancient and something we a word that we used last time something that's visceral. It's not a, it's not something that's rational. It's not something that we that we could even truly understand. Um, it's it's something that has always been there. This power of nature, this this spiritual aspect to nature, um, and I just think that's that's quite an interesting word to zoom in on when you're trying to really unpick. I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, the the the, the, the poet personifies the mountain mm-hmm. and it becomes something that's threatening and scary yeah. well, why does he why do you use the language pa- um, voluntary power instinct well it's something that's something that has its own autonomy it's its own ability to move but also that power is instinct it's something that's been that is 
um, not only prehistoric, it, it's, way, it's even older than that. It's something um, that, that human beings, again, through the scientific method or through measurement or whatever it is, whatever it is you want to call it, um, could never truly hope to understand. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I think, you know, this, this whole you know, portion of the poem, and the whole poem itself, he's really pushing this idea that he's had this epiphany, that he's had this, you know, Alex used the great phrase, romantic awakening. And he just, he, he is awe-inspired by the awesome, sheer beauty of nature, its vastness, its his inability to even begin to comprehend the majesty of the universe, mm-hmm. and in, in this moment he's filled with such dread and terror that this, you know, his fear of the mountain is a personification for his understanding of not personification, sorry, it's a metaphor for his understanding of his of his tiny, tiny place in this beautiful, terrifying yeah. universe. And we spoke last week, um, last week, last last episode about the um, the idea of the sublime. So we we said that in Ozymandias that the the desert is a is could be an environment for a sublime experience, and, mm-hmm. we, and we weren't 100 percent clear on what the sublime is, and and the reason for that really is because um, there's a lot of it's a, it's still a a topic <laughs> of kind of, of debate as to what the sublime is, whether it exists, and um, can it be something that, that you could that you could record or or accurately describe. Um, but for the purposes of your kind of um, analysis of this poem. Uh, a good way to think of the sublime, which I said in the last episode, is this agreeable form of horror. So it means that you are terrified and you're made to feel tiny and insignificant and totally um, at the mercy of nature. And yet it provides you with an insight which you didn't previously have, or at least, I mean, using that term epiphany, the, the um, what's the proper definition of epiphany? A sudden realisation of a great truth. That yes. You've, that you've kind of, you've, to add on to that, it's also the idea that you've, you, you kind of knew it before, but you didn't yeah. realise it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's it and, and a sublime experience kind of draws that out of you and you remember and again we're, this, is, this is going quite far into romanticism but we're talking about um, Rousseau the romantic said that um, all men are, bo- men, men are born free but everywhere are in chains it's this idea that we have some kind of um, kind of an instinctual power an instinctual knowledge of the universe and yet, the, and let, yet society has um, kind of drilled that out of us with this, this sterile secularised um, and overly materialistic view of life, which is which has come in the post enlightenment era. era. Um, but just, but I, one of the things I really struggle with this in this poem, and I spoke about this earlier. Like often, you know, when when I'm teaching pupils, they are they're not switched on to what he's really saying, and I think that's exactly his point. The fact that yeah. the pupils struggle to understand the majesty and beauty of nature is exactly why Wordsworth yeah. is writing yeah. this poem. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a great video I use uh, by Carl Sagan called well, it's a YouTube video. It's his voice, but it's pale blue dot. And it kind of it, it just zooms out of from Earth to the solar system to yeah. the universe, yeah. and that that's really and that for me is a sub, that video is a sublime experience. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It is terrifying to see your tiny insignificant place in this universe, but it's also freeing, yeah. and that's the romantic idea. You there's freedom in truth in knowing your place in the world and your place in the natural order. Yeah. And you know, it's I love what you said last week. Romanticism. It's not this political philosophy. It's it's a guide to life. It's a guide yeah. to values. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's what he's really trying to convey here. So check out that Carl Sagan pale blue dot video. Yeah, that is a sublime experience. But yeah, but it's something that people do. You know, people nowadays go and try and um, they go out into the middle of the desert in places like Egypt, things like that. They go, they pay good money to go and sit and just look at the stars. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you think about you, you know, we're doing this in Manchester. You go and look at the night sky in Manchester, you won't see a star. Yeah. Um, you struggle to see the moon a lot of the time because 
well, there's clouds, obviously, but it's light pollution, mm-hmm. and it's this this kind of interference of mankind and every and the kind of like almost the the dull, incessant noise of modern life, which is separating uh, itself from the actual universe. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, but these these sublime experiences are kind of raw, um, unbridled, awesome power of nature. Um, and when you're exposed to it, it, it brings you this kind of perspective that we said that, like, like you said with that video. I mean, you, you can. And anytime, anytime you start to think about the scale of the universe or our place in the universe, just that's kind of like the whole history of mankind, not just like our place right now in this moment. Um, it does have that kind of effect, and it can be quite, can be obviously quite daunting and frightening. Um, but yeah, like we said, it's it's also it's also freeing, um, and and gives you that and give and lets you latch onto that mystery, that mystery that I feel like maybe we have a yeah. we we as human beings have a yearning for that we need to know that there's a there's something unknown to us. Um, and if everything's known to us, um, then it almost gives you nothing to strive for, nothing to, nothing to. Go and for, j- yeah. just uh, annoyingly to go back to something we were saying earlier. So that quotation from the first section of the poem: "Small circles glittering idly in the moon until they're melted." So he is, he's looking at the reflection of the stars, right? So yeah. he's not even actually looking at the sky; he's looking at an imitation of the sky. So again, I think just realizing that that's almost possibly his separation from the universe. That he's not looking up. Yeah, he's looking at what he's doing rather than appreciating. That you're not the person creating this beauty. The beauty is above you. He doesn't even lift his head yeah. to see that the majesty yeah. and the sublime mm-hmm. uh, experience that is just just above his head. He's looking at a pale reflection. Yeah. Um, so the next quotation we're going to look at properly is um, so once he's kind of back on dry land and his seafaring days are over, he is uh, he's at, he basically you know he's having his nightmare. So we're just going to look at the language there. So, no familiar shapes remained, no pleasant images of trees, of sea or sky, no colours of green fields. And in particular, I just want to zoom in at no familiar shapes. There's so much certainty in that statement. No familiar shapes remained. Nothing is the same for him anymore. To the degree that shapes, you know, that, that metaphor of every, nothing is certain, everything is different, there is nothing familiar. He is lost. This epiphany, this romantic awakening has taken away everything he thought he knew. And this is the completion of his character arc. Yeah. This is, he is now changed. Everything is different. And I, that's just a really nice quotation to just, just look at the certainty. No familiar shapes remained. Yeah. And the capitalization of remained. Yeah, emphasizing that everything is different. It's almost, it's almost hard to put into words the power of, the, of that sentence. His life is completely well, altered. It, 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 it brings to mind that really commonly uh, overused or... Um, yeah, an overused phrase of, as a, of an existential crisis, mm-hmm. where you have a crisis of existence. Yes, um, and you question everything you thought you knew of existence, or what you th- what you valued, or what you took for granted. Um, within these within these lines of the poem, he has described that ex- existential crisis, this this awakening that he's had as someone who was previously who previously felt like we said in control he described uh, nature as something that's unanimously beautiful. Uh, he goes on to talk about pleasant images. Um, and the colours of the green fields, and he's so that was his kind of superficial view of nature, um, and yet after this experience, this sublime experience that has truly put him in his place, he now describes huge and mighty forms that do not live like living men, um, and he so which is basically talking about that raw power um, that can never be understood, that could should never be underestimated, um, and he's just and he's gone he's gone through that like we said that character arc he's he's gone from one understanding which Wordsworth and other romantic poets would say would be kind of like a vain, hubristic, um, almost childishly naive point of view of the world mm-hmm. um, to a much deeper understanding 
um, of of what of what their what their actual place in in the world is and what nature um, actually represents in in modern life in this post enlightenment era where it's so so often um, exploited or or shrunk down and bought and sold and it's uh, it's almost like the shroud is lifted from his eyes there's there's the great kind of uh, something in philosophy that's often referenced as Plato's cave so the idea that it, you know he's almost or science fiction we know I'm a nerd so I can talk about the matrix yeah. he is awake to the matrix he is the the person stumbling out of Plato's cave he sees the world for what it truly is now he sees the natural order of things he realizes the scale you know the scale of the universe yeah and I think there's just so much power that no familiar shapes remain. That one phrase just sums up everything yeah. that we need to know about this narrator by the end of the poem. Absolutely. You got another one to look at? Um, that's it. I was just going to say about this image of um, huge and mighty forms, and mm-hmm. we, we said that... Ambiguous um, language there. It's quite strange. What's that, sorry? It's quite ambiguous language, yeah, huge and mighty forms. Um, and we're talking about how... Like with with the enlightenment came this secularization, this reducing, um, this reduction, or um, almost trivialising of of spirituality and religion. Um, so this image of huge and mighty forms, it it has kind of connotations of make, like Greek mythology, ancient like ancient mythologies of of gods that move, um, kind of unknown but also with supreme power um, and have and have these control this control over over human beings. Um, and now he said like Wordsworth certainly wasn't a um, didn't believe in Zeus and. <laughs> anything like that he was a he was a christian but it gives that idea it it it, it very clearly expresses that idea um of uh, of mystery in, to, in in the divine in what in what um kind of like the gods represent or or titans i think were those big monsters that the gods had to, to lock up <coughs> but it's something it's something beyond human conception yeah. beyond what human beings can actually um could could ever overcome or even help, hope to understand Hundred uh, percent, and then yeah, we, it ends on on that kind of really quite haunt, haunting note. Um, moved slowly through the mind by day, and were a trouble to my dreams. And that's a really interesting note for him to end the poem on. So, were by day and were a trouble to my dreams. You know, there's the selection of the word dreams itself. Is he talking about his ambitions? Is he talking about how he perceived the world? Or is he literally talking about almost having a, a post-traumatic stress disorder here, where he's suffering from nightmares and he's having <laughs> flashbacks of this this meltdown on the lake. Yeah. Um, and yet, just that—that's the—that's the final note in the poem. It, it's, yeah. quite, it's haunting, and it's—it's it's yeah. quite negative. And I'm almost uncertain as to what, why he would, why he would make that choice. But what I usually just say is, it's this idea of this is, uh, this is he is branded by yeah, this experience impermanently. I think I think it's one of those things like um, he—he's describing the the moment itself and the the days following. Um, as something that was um, extremely shocking, possibly traumatizing, but also something that that brought him this this newfound perspective, which we've already, we've already referred to. So you know, it's it's just the old cliche. You, know, you you're gonna if you're gonna make progress in life, you have to do it through a certain amount of sacrifice, a certain amount of suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's describing that certain amount of suffering here. Um, however, I don't think. As a romantic poet, it's an experience he at all regrets. No. I think it's something that he, it's a formative experience. He's, he was a young man, um, and he saw it as, as basically shaping his his worldview and what he would later later become. Um, and which is obviously one of the most famous, if not the most famous, romantic poet. Um, huge advocate of of uh, conservation in nature um, and a, a critic of 
of this kind of like urbanized um industrialized society um Indeed. which is I mean, focused he, on materialism and consumerism he wanted the he liked the simple life he's living in the time of you know james watts and the steam engine he's he's seeing you know in a very simple way metal take over the world we're turning yeah. to steel we're turning to steam we're turning to coal and he's seeing the destruction of these things you know is 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 his passion for the beauty of the lake district and lake windermere etc yeah it's it's he's and his hatred of, his hatred of tourists as well. He, didn't uh, like tourists. he did not like tourists, yeah. particularly ones who stole boats, I believe. Um, so just to move on to the the structure of the poem, <coughs> excuse me. Um, so it you know it's it's got obviously there are no stanzas uh, in terms of form, but I think that the, the simplest thing I'd say for structure, yes, you have the vaulting, you have the changing of tone about halfway through this extract, but the main thing I think I would drive is there's such a clear character arc. And that's not commonplace in the other poems in this anthology. But we have a, we have a protagonist, a, man, a, man, a person who is acting and, and causing events, and they change. Mm-hmm. This, the poem is structured to have a clear character arc where this character goes through this existential crisis, has this epiphany, this romantic awakening. And that's just really the, the note I drive. It, it tells a, a clear story with a character who changes yeah. on a fundamental yeah. level. So when, when this podcast, uh, you know, in, in, many, in weeks and months to come, if we ever get onto how to write uh, narrative writing, um, we talk about this idea of foreshadowing. Um, and Ted, I know you, you pointed out a really interesting point about how the... The, it, the, when he first stole the boat, it was not without the not without the voice of mountain echoes. Did my boat move on? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's this idea of the epiphany. This is something that he was was always within him, something he always knew. Um, and yet, at that point, he was he was deaf to. So looking back at it, he he knew that the yeah. mountains were there. He knew that he knew what uh, nature was. He was aware of what it was, but he he was lying to himself. Realize, yeah, being willfully ignorant as to what that was. Um, so that it's it's probably. Probably quite rare to see foreshadowing in a poem, um, but that that's a really interesting instance of where it, it definitely does exist. It's like the cliche in the horror movie of uh, I think Halloween is coming out this week of you know, Michael Michael Myers or yeah, some yeah. villain standing in the background, and here here's the mountain kind of just there, you know, already being personified with its voice, just waiting, yeah. just waiting for definitely. this fool to go definitely. out to the lake to uh, to snatch him. Uh, yeah, it's quite chilling. In some definitely, respects. well, yeah, I think it's it, and that's the, that's the thing about this poem is that it. On the surface, it seems like nothing happens. A guy steals a boat, rows out into a lake, comes back, um, and then he has this—he he has bad dreams. Um, but if you if you contextualize it as to what Wordsworth was actually interested in, um, the things that he was the things that he was worried about in his lifetime, um, and the kind of ideas that he wanted to get across, there's huge amounts of depth here, and. There's just so. I mean, we we picked a few quotations there, but we honestly could have done a whole other podcast this, yeah, this, talking about a whole different set of quotations and, and been just as uh, had just as much to say. This is a beautiful poem. It is literally overflowing with things to kind of explore all day. Um, so, a quick note in the form of the poem. Um, if Emily's listening to this, she will uh, possibly resent this moment. But it's always important to mention form and structure when looking at poem because they're vital tools at conveying meaning. So, yeah, this poem's written in blank verse. Yeah. Big whoop, no big deal. But when you actually read through this poem, it has a dazed quality. And the, the lack of rhyme, the lack of kind of, a, you know, a rhyming scheme or whatever it might be, it, it gives it a much more authentic voice. So it sounds like someone who's actually speaking to you. But as you read this poem, it, the, the narrator sounds as if they're dazed. I'm almost you're prompted to think of someone who is, you know, under hypnosis. And, and or someone who is uh, giving a confession, someone who is almost reliving the experience in that moment, and they're speaking in a daze, and there's it, an eerie, eerie quality to the rhythm yeah. of this, and it's, this of iambic pentameter. Yeah, it, 
just to, on that point about him seeming dazed and that kind of it's it's a stream of consciousness it's mm. it's not a it, it's the way not in terms of the language because the language is obviously perfectly and very carefully chosen but in in the structure comes across as this he's kind of just blurting out his experiences and the next poem we look at my last Duchess, has a very similar um structural point where the speaker um almost inadvertently confesses to a murder um, this one is not quite as dramatic in that sense, but it's still that kind of, um, this is, it's a very raw experience. It's not something that's been kind of chopped up and rationalised. It's something that is, is truly felt. Um, and the structure kind of just really supports that idea. Um, and I think that is actually uh, all we have. Well, it's not all we have to say. We could really go on about this poem forever. Uh, so just final thing as an exam tip. I think this poem is so, <clears throat> is so wonderful in so many ways, but in an exam sense, you can compare this poem with any poem. You have power, you have control, you have fear. I mean, aside from war... Well, you have, the, you have the conflict as well. You have the conflict. I mean, we spoke briefly about conflict between mankind and nature in Ozymandias, um, and there's a conflict here between mankind and, mm-hmm. and nature. Um, it's quite toned down, um, but it's still, it's still very clearly there. So it, it is a real... Um, it's, it's a very diverse dynamic poem yeah, and you can yeah. compare it with, with any of the poems really in the anthology. Definitely. And I think you know, it's very unlikely this poem is ever going to be the one given to you uh, in the exam uh, just because it is very, very difficult. It's probably in some ways the most challenging poem in the, ex- in the, Famous in the anthology. Famous last words, those, Ted. Oh, okay, okay, so it could come up, but I think it is very unlikely. And I think you're, you showing your confidence in choosing this poem. If you're aiming for top grades, you're looking for a 7 to 9, this is the poem that you can get that analysis out of. Yeah. This is the one I would be telling you to pick yeah. because not many candidates will feel confident choosing yeah. this poem. 100%. Um, and that is everything for today. So thank you very much for listening. It's bye from me, Ted. And it's bye from me. Thank you very much. See you later, English nerds.